I've always struggled with the term zero trust. I, I like the idea. And the way that I always phrase it to myself is like trust minimization or trust reduction. You're looking at things that you're trusting and you're saying, how many things do I have to trust? Where can I remove trust? But I don't know whether you can ever actually get to zero trust. I'm Steve Stormbreaker, and this is Ephemeral Security. Would you please state your name and what you do? So I'm Ethan Heilman. I'm the CTO of uh, Bastion Zero. My, my background is as a software engineer, security researcher with a focus on cryptology and protocols. I really enjoy thinking about protocols and defenses. And so a lot of my work at Bastion Zero is on designing protocols and figuring out ways to use cryptography to remove trust from systems. Awesome. And when did you first use a computer? So the first time I, I, I really used a computer was, um, I don't remember what year it is, but I'll date myself. It was an IBM PS2 running DOS 3.0. Nice. I played a lot of uh, games and messed around a lot in uh, Basic A. Awesome. That sounds fun. So how did you get into information security? That's a, a bit of a long story, but the short version of it is I was always really interested in computers and messing around with computer programs. Um, when I was a kid, I didn't really know how to program, but I'd go into like the basic A shareware games we had and like play with them. So I was always collecting a lot of security knowledge. And then over the years doing IT and like working at a data center and then being like a software engineer, I was always the person who it wasn't in my job description, but like people knew that I understood security. So I'd get pulled into InfoSec tasks People would ask me, like, how do you store password hashes? And then so I'd work on that program or I'd find security bugs. Um, so I was sort of the software engineer that people would come to with uh, security questions. And in my spare time, I was just really excited about security research. So I was spending a lot of time doing that sort of research. And I enjoyed it so much that when the startup I was at got acquired, I decided to go do like a PhD in it. And then I spent a long time basically like deep diving on network security and cryptology. So you mentioned that you're at a crypto company and then you switched to Bastion Zero. Was it, is it the same company or, or how'd that work? Yeah, so that was a pivot. What had occurred was when I was doing my PhD, my advisor, Sharon Goldberg, we had developed some really cool cryptocurrency protocol tech. And we decided to start a company around it. So we both founded Commonwealth Crypto and we were in that in that space for a while, but COVID hit and then the space is just so heavily regulated. We're always saying like, you know, we'd have these great ideas to build something like really cool. And we'd be like, oh, we can't do that. Like the regulators might be upset. And like everything we were building was just like how to ensure that people wouldn't get their like cryptocurrencies stolen from them. So it's all like security technology. But regulation in that space, because uh, many of the things are securities and even the things that are not securities have banking law, just building security protocols to keep people safe was uh, scary from a regulatory point of view. And then, you know, COVID hit. We saw a lot of the, the people that we were working with that we were going to launch projects with started getting rid of their cryptocurrency teams. And so we said, well, a lot of what we built and a lot of what we've thought about is really just security technologies that's generally applicable. And so we thought about ways that we could apply these ideas outside of the cryptocurrency space and remove trust from systems. Because what we were doing before with cryptocurrency was we were thinking about ways that like you and I could trade coins and normally you like trust a third party to do the trading. But we developed protocols where like there was a third party, but you didn't have to trust them. The third party could be malicious. And we could still trade coins without our coins being in danger, even if they had become compromised. So we, we thought a lot about those ideas and thought about how to sort of apply that mindset of having a third party that can provide a lot of like help and value without becoming a single point of compromise. Got it. That reminds me of like, I think someone was explaining encryption to me one time. And they're like, imagine a naked guy on a motorcycle who goes into a tunnel. Like, 
nobody knows he's naked when he's in the tunnel. And then when he comes out, he's naked again, <laughs> something like that. It was crazy. But um, yeah, that's really cool that you're working on, you know, had works on technology where one host could be compromised. Multi-party computation, um, is that part of that realm? Um, I think it is. We had some ideas around it, but generally one of the nice things about the parts of the cryptocurrency space we were we were in was that they would accept multiple signatures. So if you said this action requires the consent of three parties, you could just say, I get a signature from Alice, I get a signature from Bob, I get a signature from Carol, and the blockchain would enforce that all three of those signatures are valid. So because of that, for many of the things, we didn't have to do MPC, multi-party computation. I think in the cybersecurity space, we're actually looking at it more because there's less of a support for like five of seven signatures to perform some action. They tend to just be like, oh, do you have a cert that's signed by a CA? Yes. Okay, you're in. So we've been looking more at MPC now that we've left the blockchain space. So speaking of certs, with Bastion Zero, um, are you guys using certificate pending or like, can you talk about the technology in terms of certificates? Do, do you have to worry about a CA type of thing um, or somebody's you know decrypting all your traffic because they've gone to the CA and that kind of thing? Bastion Zero, as it currently functions, trusts the web PKI um, infrastructure. We have not put systems in place to defend against an attacker that can break TLS. It's something that I like care a lot about. So when I say that, I say that because it's something I've been thinking about and it's a place that we want to get to. But just in terms of thinking about threats, in terms of like the TLS web connection, we are less concerned with that than with a IDP CA that gets compromised and their certificate is used by an attacker. Yeah, so I guess it'd be like, think about this. So let's say the CA for the SSO gets popped. But then if you guys are also using that same CA, I guess that'd be a problem. I mean, it's like it was DigiDotar the last big one. That was like, it was years ago, though. I don't want to get up on a huge tangent, but I'm just, I'm just curious. I was just thinking about it. Yeah, uh, I mean, I, I think about that problem a lot. One of the, the areas that I used to do research with was the RPKI, which was building like a PKI to defend routing infrastructure. So I want to get to the point at which TLS could be broke. You have an attacker that can just break TLS and we can still provide security against that. But right now on sort of the, the threats that we worry about, that that is not like the highest priority threat, but it is, it is eventually a threat that we wish to overcome. But there's just so, if you have an attacker that can break TLS, there's like so many things that can go wrong just from like breaking into people's email and like then getting in there and resetting passwords and like, you know, security becomes a, a total nightmare against an attacker that can uh, arbitrarily break TLS. Right. Yeah, that, that, that makes sense. Uh, so I guess to kind of pull this thread a little bit more when the, the connectivity between, let's say, Bastion Zero and a customer's servers, I know it's an outbound connection from the server. Is there a way to use something like VPC endpoints or something like that from the customer's database infrastructure directly to your infrastructure so that connection doesn't have to go over the public internet? Yeah, so I think we could definitely do things um, in terms of where that traffic transits. For instance, if we're in AWS and they're in AWS and we're in the same zone, then we're probably going to be talking fairly directly with each other. But then also just peering and creating, um, what's that called? Where you have a bunch of nodes and you basically ensure the AS graph that you transit is the one that you want to transit. I know Google does a lot of that. I forget what that's called. Well, oh, like like routes and stuff or like blank lists or? Yeah. But I mean, I'm, I'm more talking about VPC endpoints. It's, so so the, the VPC endpoints are a way where you can route all traffic through so let's let's say I want to talk to S3, but but I don't want my EC2 instance to go directly to the public internet to go to S3. I can set up a VPC endpoint, and that would talk to S3, like the private interface. But there's a way where you can get a VPC endpoint um, between two totally different customers, um, and then that customer would talk to a gateway and the other client's environment. So I guess so, like private link, uh, AWS private link. Yeah, it's it, yeah, it's, it's like that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I think those approaches are good. The main approach that I've been thinking about 
is just that the servers phone home to the bastion to create the connection to transit from VPCs. And in doing so, it would not be difficult to have the agents which rest on the servers know the pub key of the bastion service. Currently, when they when they register, they register their public key with Bastion. So when they make future connections, the Bastion can recognize that pub key. But you could also do it in the other direction so that both parties are aware of each other's pub keys, either at registration or just within configuration. And so in that case, there's just a completely separate encryption mechanism that would be robust to a total compromise of DLS. Interesting. So can you talk a little bit about how Bastion Zero works? Sure. The main idea with Bastion Zero is that you have an SSO or an IDP that identifies your users. They say alice at example.com. But if that IDP is compromised, the attack... Sorry, IDP? What's IDP? Oh, sorry. Uh, Like an identity provider like Okta or Google. Okay, and so that's different than multi-factor? Yeah, that's different than multi-factor. So the idea is like, um, I can sign into a website with Google or with Okta. I think, I think a lot of people are familiar with that. Sorry, sending a Gmail or whatever, right? Yeah. So when I say IDP, um, I'm referring to a service just like uh, Google that you sign into. You provide credentials to Google, and then Google provides this uh, signed statement back to the user that you are who you say you are. The issue is that if you are totally reliant on, say, Google for identifying all your users to your services and Google is hacked or Okta is hacked, then the attacker can impersonate any of your users because they can sign statements saying that they are alice at example.com. Or credential stuffing, right? They, they, get, there's, they get password dubs and, and then they, they test it and that person's using the same credentials and now they have credentials on for your, for your network. Right, right. Or if they manage to compromise the secret key that signs all of these statements, uh, similar to like a, a golden ticket attack, they can just produce as many signed statements as they want to be. Yeah, I, th- I think golden tickets like when uh, you're, you're signing tickets for like the AD network, but golden SAML, <laughs> that's when it gets really bad. Right, right, right. Yeah. Bastion Zero does two things with this. The first thing is that it adds an additional root of trust where you not only authenticate yourself to the IDP, but you authenticate yourself with a MFA device to Bastion Zero. So now, even if the IDP was compromised or those particular credentials to the IDP was compromised, you have this additional MFA to Bastion Zero such that being able to compromise the IDP is not sufficient to be able to compromise the access that Bastion Zero provides. In addition to this, we've designed Bastion Zero such that Bastion Zero is also not a a single point of compromise in the system. So if Bastion Zero is compromised, the attacker still cannot get access. It requires the joint compromise of both the IDP and Bastion Zero. Let's say I'm a Google Enterprise customer and I go to like, let's say my company's Acme. So I go to like acme.octa.com. And when I log in, it sends that authentication over to Google to authenticate, right? And then I get hit with the second step, the MFA step. Then that MFA, my understanding, always goes to Okta. Are you saying that it would instead go to you guys for the situation or it would go to Okta and then there's another step where it goes to you guys? So there would be a, uh, it's the second thing you said. So there'd be a, a second MFA to us. Okay, so that second MFA, is that always a six-digit code or could it also be push? So currently, we support six-digit code TOTP. We really want to support additional methods of uh, MFA, such as push, uh, such as like uh, FIDO, YubiKeys, um, you know, such as I, I believe it's um, WebAuthn that uh, Apple uses where you have the button that you just push and it'll do an MFA for you. So we want to support many different forms of um, MFA uh, long-term. This is great. So... I guess the fact that you don't support push m- makes me like you guys more. <laughs> just boy, just because yeah, there's push bombing and stuff, right? If, if you can send a push from the same geolocation as the person lives right around 9 a.m., some, some idiot's going to hit okay. Just make, make, make the messages go away. And in this case, that wouldn't matter, at least for access to, to your guys' systems because you'd have to type it in. That being said, it's, it's technically like a misconfiguration on the, the admin side who set up multi-factor. But sometimes you have to protect people from themselves. Um, 
But I guess this also kind of brings me to the question around, you guys can do everything right. But if that server, let's say that you're connecting to through Bastion Zero, if somebody configures that with a bunch of open ports and they have other authorized SSH keys just sitting on there, right? Then somebody could very easily authenticate to it, right? So, but I mean, I mean with the, I assume there's like some sort of shared responsibility. Where, where does like the, the line for what you guys secure and then like everything else, like uh, where's that line? That's a really good question. I think that what we want to enable is for people to be able to get rid of open ports and SSH and like a bunch of keys just sitting on a server somewhere that an attacker can exploit and then move laterally. I think that the the line is that we provide a secure way to access your servers. We don't prevent you from providing additional ways of accessing those servers. So if someone does misconfigure a server that allows some attacker in, we're not like a, a firewall company. So we like give you the right way to do it. And we expect you to, to then, because that now exists, to like remove uh, insecure ways of accessing it. But we don't want to force a customer to do that. If a customer has some additional access system that they want to use, um, we're not going to prevent them from doing that. I think that what we do care about and where that line is, is we don't want to make a compromise of that server any worse. So you could imagine that like, if we were to store additional credentials as part of our system on that server, and then that server would be compromised, we would have made that problem worse. So whenever we think about uh, these systems, we never want to do harm. We want to provide this better way of doing things um, such that even if that server was compromised, the attacker would not get anything more than if we were not there. Got it. And so the, the client, the end user, um, disconnecting to like, let's say a server, they have to go through Bastion Zero. And from your documentation I was reading, there's two different types of ways they can do it. There's like the dynamic way and the non-dynamic way, kind of like ephemeral Bastions and stuff. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. Trying to think about uh, what you mean by um, dynamic. Oh, look, so I think that's what you guys called it. I call them ephemeral Bastions. Basically, every time you want to connect to a server, you guys spin up a new system that's totally clean that the person SSHs through. Oh, sure, sure. So that's dynamic targets. We have a system whereby you can request a new computer that you want to connect to, and you can like plug in your provisioning system. And when you provision the new computer, you can just like connect to it. The new computer could be used as a, a Bastion host internally, but it could also just be like you want to access a database. You just want like a fresh computer to, to uh, jump in, access and do some tasks and then have it torn down when you leave. So it's something our customers have asked for. Um, sometimes they just want to spin up a host to jump on it to get something done inside their network. But the access system is is still the same. They just like request that host as part of accessing it. And then when the host spins up, they're they're given a connection. Oh, so this is like it's like a Linux box that you essentially can proxy all your stuff through, it sounds like. It's a Linux box that the customer can plug in their provisioning system into our system so that they can request through our system to spin up a box and then drop the user into that box. So often what people are doing is that they're proxying through it, but they could also just be like, I want some box to do some compute task real quick uh, and I want it thrown away later. So then where does that box live? Is it live on your, your network or the customer's network? Because I want to talk to RDS. Is there like a restriction like RDS will only accept connections from this IP, these IP addresses, and it's one, one of the IP addresses is the subnet that boxes in or something. Um, so the, this this is totally on their network. They have their own provisioning system where they can like spin up boxes. Um, the real problem that this solves is just that there are um, customers that uh, spin up boxes to accomplish tasks, and they don't want to have to like configure and like add our stuff and then connect to it. They would just want like a really simple workflow where the user says, log me into a new box, enter, and then it hits their provisioning system. It spins up a new box in their network and then they connect to it. This is really good. This means less tools on the regular laptop that's browsing the web and stuff, right? So that's super good. And I think it's like long running tasks too, like running a some sort of job that takes a long time. And I kind of think of it as like screen. Uh, if you're familiar with a screen and you're just kind of writing something and you you need to go back to it. So that, that that's really cool. So what does zero trust mean to you? Like how would you define it? 
Zero trust is a, a really interesting term because I feel like zero trust systems do not have no trust. So true. So I've always I've always struggled with the term zero trust. I, I like the idea and the way that I always phrase it to myself is like trust minimization or trust reduction. You're looking at things that you're trusting and you're saying, how many things do I have to trust? Where can I remove trust? But I don't know whether you can ever actually get to zero trust. Taking a descriptive view on zero trust, generally what companies mean when they say zero trust is that there is a server somewhere that can grant tokens to users to access other services and the users authenticate themselves to that server that grants tokens. These tokens are like short-lived ephemeral access. They use those tokens to uh, access that service and then those tokens die. So they don't have to trust the user's laptop with like long-lived credentials or um, other things like that. But they still have to trust the server that is granting the, the access tokens. Right. So when right now you guys are covering SSH, databases, Kubernetes, and then I saw in beta you have web servers. So it seems like you're starting to kind of get into the territory of maybe something, something that's a little more heavy like you know, Zscale or Palo Alto Prisma Cloud, where you're accessing more than just a few different services. And that, now you're talking about HTTP and stuff. So the, the, the beta service for the web, I guess I'm wondering, is that like split tunnel to all DNS requests? Go through that. How does that work in, in terms of, if I, want, if I want to hit an internal server, what, what DNS am I, am I using a public DNS server for that? Am I putting a, a, a private record in that or how does that work? So the way that works is it's really, really simple. Basically, we designed this, we designed the web feature both for ourselves and for uh, some of the customers that had requested it, but it is not a more like complex feature. The use case is essentially that you have Grafana or you have some sort of internal uh, website that you want to visit and you don't have a VPN because you're uh, using our service and haven't configured a VPN on some of your users' laptops or they don't sign into the VPN very frequently. You control who has access to the VPN. And so this is just essentially a, a local host tunnel where you map a port on your local host to an IP address or like host name on your internal network. And then you just send the HTTP request through that tunnel signed through our through our system and then to a like an exit agent inside your network okay so you something you this is like if somebody doesn't feel like setting up remote forwarding or something it seems like this is remote forwarding through a web gui like you you can figure through that and then it's always available you don't have to configure the ports every time type of thing right right I think it's a much simpler feature than you're thinking of. Um, and it's just to hit that use case of I want to check Grafana or I have some like API on some server that I'm testing and I want to hit it and it's on some VPC that I don't have direct access to. And then you can also restrict which users can hit that too, right? Exactly. Okay. So that's really key. I like that. Do you know if you're, have you guys tested your product with SE Linux? Has, have any customers requested that? So some customers have have been interested in that. I think there's a little bit more work that has to be done to get us to work with SE Linux, but it's one of the features that we're targeting in the short term. I think there's some permissions issues with installing. It's just a SE, SE Linux permissions thing. Got it. Yeah, it can be uh, magic unless <laughs> uh, you know what you're doing. How does privilege access work? Is there some type of flow? If, if let's say there's like the normal access that a user has permissions to, but let's say that they need to get to like the break glass account or they need to SSH into prod and normally prod's restricted. Is it like a workflow or is it something the customer has to do on their own or how's that work? So this is a feature that we haven't deployed yet, but I'm really excited about. We've been like working on over the last month that we're going to do a internal demo of it uh, tomorrow. So it's like very like getting done and very exciting. So we have this uh, feature called just-in-time access. Um, so you can set up a policy on Bastion Zero that says, if this group of users wishes to act, access this group of servers as this particular uh, Linux user, it requires approval to let them in. And the way approval works is that there is a Slack bot. So you go to access the server, the Slack bot contacts a, a approver, and you can set this to be like uh, to auto-approve so that it just drops an alert in a channel, or you can select this to have like a, a set of approvers. 
Um, the first version is just auto-approve, but the sort of final goal that we're working towards is you have some set of approvers. So you say, I want to access the server. It's an important thing. Here's the reason I want to access it. You push like request access. Our Slack bot uh, messages the person, this is why this person wants to access the server, like yes or no, grant access or, or post it in a, in a channel. And then the approver can determine whether to let the person in or not, or just alert on that. Can that be timed, like they're permitted at 10 p.m. or something? It can definitely be uh, time boxed. And time boxing is uh, something that we want to build into our permission system more, more thoroughly. I read the requirements uh, recently. I think that you get access for two hours and then you have to um, request it again. I'm not sure whether we've built it so that you can specify how long that, that time period is. Uh, I'm not talking about how long it is. I'm talking about like the actual time it's enabled. Because like sometimes like a change window might not start to like 10 p.m. or something, right? So, but, but let's say the change was approved at like 2 p.m. or something that day. Could you approve it and then have it be active at 10 p.m.? I hadn't thought of that. And that's a really cool idea. I think we could definitely do that. Right now, we think about it as like, this person needs access right now. They get like a two hour window, but you're totally right. Like you're deploying to production at this time. Uh, something could go wrong. This person is going to uh, be able to request this time window for the pro production deploy that works. Yeah, that's that's a really good idea. Yeah, I mean, I would kind of envision it like, so a lot of companies, like the firewall admins, if you have like, let's say 500 offices right across the US, like every single weekend you're, you're doing maintenance and stuff. And so there'll be change tickets and then certain techs will have to SSH into the firewalls. They need access until the job's done and they might not finish till 5 a.m. or something, right? So ideally they get access starting at 10, up until 7 or a.m. or something. And then if they fix it, you know, by 3 a.m. or something, then they maybe, maybe they can request to terminate the access themselves or something. But I don't know, I was just throwing that out there. Yeah, no, I think that's a really good idea. And I think that one thing that building just-in-time access has given us in our policy system is the idea of like policy generators. So policies that generate other policies. We hadn't fully thought through how flexible and powerful that system is until we started building it for just-in-time access. But you can, you can have a policy that grants a policy in some time box. You can have a policy that when certain conditions are met, creates a policy that allows someone to do something. So for certain conditions, there is one particular thing that I think a lot of people are sensitive to, and that is the root account for AWS, right? And a lot of people, the gold standard is to have MFA, the hardware, hardware MFA, right? But some, comp some companies will store the MFA token just on some random dude's cell phone in the company. Other companies will put it like in a one password vault. I don't know if you can put restrictions for the root account as what IP address they could come from. I know you can only allow people to contact AWS API from specific IPs for non-root accounts. I've never tried to fit the root account, but it'd be interesting that to basically make it so folks could only tunnel through you guys to get to the root account or something like that, um, and then have multiple approvers or something. I, I don't know. Have you guys thought about root accounts and, and accessing those and protecting them? So we've, we've thought a lot about root accounts. Um, and in fact, the thing that you were describing was an idea for a product to build that we decided not to build, but I think it is fantastic, which is that we really wanted to lock down the root account to AWS. And so we were spending all this time thinking about like, well, okay, but there's this like email address that then can like talk to AWS and how do you lock down that email address? And it's like, okay, we can lock down that email address, but that email address is really verified by DNS. And so like, you know, if DNS is compromised, say they figure out some clever way of sending a fax to the DNS register, which has, has happened in times and transferring it, then they can like, you know, initiate a reset of the email password and then use that to get into the root account. So we're like, I really wish there was some way that we could basically have an AWS account that couldn't be reset except going through a server inside AWS. And then that server could put whatever security controls you wanted on it. So like some Lambda function, which even root itself couldn't subvert. <laughs> and then that Lambda function would be root itself. So I spent a lot of time thinking about this. I just want like everyone plugs in their hardware key and you get three of five people to sign off 
And then you can get into that email in that like super privileged email account. You can get into that uh, root AWS account. And I think you can build something pretty close to that. But the thing that always scares me is that there's always the case where you talk to someone on the phone at AWS and somehow convince them to like reset that information. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, how do you ensure that that can't happen? So it's like the, the great thing about Google and Gmail is that you can't get anybody on the phone ever. Yeah. So if you build it for that, you're, you're set. But the flip side of that is AWS, you can get someone on the phone and then it's like, how do you actually know what they can and can't do? So, I, I mean, in my experience, we've had situations where we, we've lost the root password and stuff, and we have to get something signed by a notary and stuff and, and send it over to AWS. And then we have to wait like 24 or 48 hours or something to finally get the credentials. But you're saying that you could just reset the root password through email? So I'm trying to think back. We originally used those RSA. This was like um, at Commonwealth Crypto. We originally used those RSA tokens as the hardware devices to get into the root account. But we set things up so we like never had to get into the root account. And the thing with those devices is that if you don't use them frequently enough, they get clock drift and then they no longer work. That sucks. So we had them no longer work. And I and other people at the company had put a lot of thought into like, we had like backup ones and like stored in different places and safes and like, you know, took it very, very, very paranoid. And we're like, oh crap have we like locked ourselves out? And then we just called up AWS and was like, Hey, so we got this like clock drift thing. And like, I think we had to wait like 48 hours or something, but like, it was extremely helpful to us at the time, but it also just like scared me. Cause it was like the, just the ability to be able to do that is always is a hundred percent. I understand why AWS does it. They wouldn't have a business if they let people lock themselves out permanently. But at the same time, it's like, how, how hard should that process be? And like, yeah. Maybe there should be other like backup mechanisms. So yeah, that that made me start thinking about this a lot. But it's also just like maybe it is more difficult in other circumstances. Maybe they looked at the last time that we had logged in and they like knew that we had these RSA keys and it was a very believable story. But it's like, how do you know exactly what the limitations there are? How powerful is that person on the other end of the phone? If you're a really convincing, charming person, what can you get away with? And so I'd love to replace that person with a computer. <laughs> yeah, that's so true. If you think about what's going on now, where different groups will put, they'll impersonate the police and send, send requests to ISPs and stuff and, and get data on people. There's that. And then paying an insider, right? There's, and then SIM swapping. I mean, so this is just going to be the evolution. Now, now it's going to be like root swapping, right? Uh, maybe, maybe once that happens, I'll get serious about it. I mean, I've been incredibly disappointed by how unserious the phone companies have been with SIM swapping and how much your phone number has become like the root of your identity. I used to always joke that like in the future, people would be like, you know, you know, you're like global citizen ID number, like fun fact, it used to be a way that you could like have a audio call with someone, you know, 300 years ago. Oh, man. Yeah, it's really funny. I could see people laughing about that in the future. <laughs> so um, I did want to talk a little bit more about this privilege access stuff, the, the just-in-time. There is a requirement for, like, if you look at HIPAA, right, where you're supposed to have a separate admin account. Like, uh, there's, like, high trust in HIPAA, and any users are supposed to have separate admin accounts, right? So is there a way to tie? So let's say it's J. Smith, right? And then, and then they have an admin J. Smith account. So I guess the request would just come for access for admin J. Smith. Maybe that'd be the way to do it. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, I, I think if you had like a lot of what Bastion Zero is doing is it's mapping IDP users like Google users or Okta users to these um, like Linux users or like database users, these role accounts. So yeah, I think that one way to do that would be that you just have a separate IDP user. So you have bob at example.com and then you have like admin bob at example.com. And then you just set up a policy that's different for admin Bob. I do wonder though, with this, and I think this is why you're, you're, you're raising this with this just in time feature, you could have Bob at example.com be able to get say like read only privileges to a particular server. And then if he requires additional access, there's this like approval that like drops him into a admin role if he gets the approval. But I don't know enough about HIPAA to say whether that would, that would qualify with HIPAA or, or not. 
So it's either HIPAA or high trust, but I mean, the requirement says you're supposed to have a separate admin account. So basically the account that you use every day to like browse the web, log into your laptop, or let's just say, check your email, your work email with your SSO and MFA, you should have a separate account if you're accessing uh, sensitive systems, right? Yeah. And I think that's probably just like a, a good idea just to keep those credentials separated. I definitely do that with privileged accounts. I have my like normal account and then I have my privileged account and I'm like never logged into the privileged account. And I like think about what boxes I do it on and use a different MFA for them. But the one of the problems with that is, at least in my experience, a lot of companies will assume that the privileged account is also an account that someone's always logged into. So they'll send you like alerts to the privileged account and then you like won't see them in your regular account. It sort of like forces you to log in. And the danger there is like you could set up email forwarding, but given that there's lots of like password resets through email, if you email forward to your non-privileged account, now you've provided a way in which someone could potentially do a password reset from the privileged account because it's forwarded to the non-privileged account. Yeah, it's tricky. I think in the past I've seen it where like you you don't have email hooked up to the admin privilege account, but then you run into problems. Like, I mean, you you have to actually like contact if it's Microsoft, you, you have to contact the domain admin, like, hey, reset my admin password, because you, you can't go through normal password reset and stuff. But it gets tricky. So I was reading about API keys in your docs. Could, could you talk a little bit about, like, cause it was saying, like, you, you're only showing the private key once, you're supposed to store it somewhere sensitive. And when I started reading that, like, alarm bells are going off, and I'm reading documentation on how to authenticate through the API with the API keys. And does that, like, negate all multi-factor if you have the public and, and private key and API key? Our APIs are at a different trust level than systems access. So when you create an API should not like allow you onto your hosts. Yeah, so if you're configuring an API, our customers generally use API access for like automated scripts and tasks. So they're, at least in the, in the conversations I've had, they have like a CI job that does something. Uh, that CI job doesn't have MFA. And so there's, there's just a secret that's associated that gives that, that like script uh, access to that API. Okay, so in that case, you would set up like AWS Secrets Manager and maybe that dynamic host you're talking about, it, it runs with the IAM role that has permission to access the AWS secret that has the keys to, to talk to your service or something like that. Yeah, I think that would be um, the right way to do that in AWS. Um, put them in some sort of vault or in Secrets Manager, and then use a AIM to like lock them down. You know, like CI jobs need API access, and there's always the problem of managing the secrets that the uh, CI has. Right. Yeah. I mean, I definitely seen it done wrong when there's like uh, an on-prem or even like vault hosted in the cloud, where just like every developer can see every secret. Right. And that's like the wrong way to do it. Okay, so then I, I guess, so it's up to the customer. We're talking about the delineation of like responsibilities. So it's up to the customer to protect those keys if they were doing it, I guess, smarter and <laughs> put it somewhere else. You can access the APIs using the credentials that you access our web app with. And in that case, that would be covered by MFA. But in our experience, most people are doing automated access of the APIs. So they just want a secret that they can manage themselves and have a script do that. Can you restrict those to, to, to certain IP addresses? I don't think we offer that functionality, but it's definitely something that we want to offer. In general, having more visibility into the IP addresses that users are using, what IP addresses you can or can't connect from is a feature that we uh, want to build out. And I, I think we pretty much have to build out. Yeah, or is there some, or there's some way to tag the identity with it? Because uh, it just makes me nervous, like somebody, I've been in situations where, I mean, if you're, once your company gets big enough and you have enough developers, somebody's going to post API keys to a public GitHub by mistake. It happens. Um, and so that, that that's the situation that worries me is, you know, how long are those keys out there? Somebody grabs them, do they know what they're for? Uh, that kind of stuff. It just slows down. It just slows down an attacker. And if you have things that you can lock down like that, that are simple, like you, you should be doing them. I mean, one, one thing that I've thought about and I, I want to build out as a feature, it's just having a known set of IP addresses for the agents to talk back to, uh, just so like you don't have to trust DNS. Like I know DNS is great and there's TLS and there's like all of that, but like my take on everything is like, if you don't have to trust something, 
then that's like a free win, like remove, remove that trust um, and build a more secure system. Yeah, absolutely. That, that'd, be, that'd be perfect. Uh, I know um, the Palo Alto has that with their Prisma Cloud where you get a certain set of external IP addresses that are um, specifically for your, your client. But I think if you had a specific list and maybe maybe that could update you know, every once in a while, it, it could pull an updated list, but that, that would make the most sense. I, I like that. I mean, I love the thing Google did with DNS is uh, 8888. Like it's just so memorable as a, a IP address that like you can just be like, yep, that's 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 one of Google's DNS servers. If you ever need a DNS server, there's one there. Right. I guess you could take a step further too, like static routes and stuff too. <laughs> if you're going to have some static IPs, like how, how far do you want to take it? I mean, I love this stuff, so I'll take it super far, but I always have to balance that with the fact that, you know, you have to like choose your battles. Like I'd love to build like a, a, a system where I've like sucked every bit of trust out and like hardened everything. And then there's always just a question of like, what's the right place to put the strength? Where do you get the most like security value for the effort? Right. So what type of response are you seeing for your product in the market? Um, so I think the response has been uh, really good and not just for our product, but for like this whole space in general. We've seen that everyone really wants to like get rid of AWS. They want more secure systems. They don't like managing their own bastion hosts. So like we've seen a great response from customers. Sometimes customers are like, listen, we want to run everything ourselves. We don't want to use a SaaS. We want it to be all in-house, but like they want a solution to this problem. So I always see that as like, like vindicating, like maybe we're not the right solution for that customer but everyone is sort of struggling with this problem. And we hear from customers a lot where they, they don't want to build it themselves. They don't want like the headache of having to manage all of this stuff. They want to get the economies of scale that you get from when you have a company that builds, builds this out. But everyone worries about trusting a SaaS, especially with this sort of access. So the thing that we see like the most amount of positive feedback from customers is our ability to be a SaaS that provides sensitive access to servers while at the same time, they don't need to trust us because we can't access their servers. And so I, in, in the conversations with customers, that like idea really like resonates because it's just, there's so many benefits to a SaaS and the cost is always trust. And because we can provide a, a SaaS that you don't have to trust, at least in all the conversations I've had with customers, they, they like really love that. So the whole SaaS that you don't have to trust, I mean, it sounds great. I think that maybe you're saying some customers like they'll walk, potential customers will walk if, if they can't host it on, but they can't host it themselves. And I'm guessing maybe that's because they don't understand the technology or they're thinking there's some other break, break of the chain that they could make, make it so the data is compromised. So are you guys considering offering something where a customer would pay for a separate AWS account, your team sets it up in there and maybe they get like up, updates and patches like once a quarter or something like that? Uh, otherwise, it's going to be on some old release version, um, whereas like your standard SaaS customers get get like updated product all the time. So that's that's a great idea, and we've been discussing this like since the beginning of the company. Like, do we offer something like that? And I think we have definitely encountered a number of companies that just want to build their own or uh, self-host it, but we've encountered many more companies that that don't want to do that, and so it's sort of uh, in some ways, like forced our hand that like, well, we'll just build like the best SaaS. And if it ever comes to the to a situation where like everyone wants to like build their own, they don't want a SaaS, like we'll, we'll go down that road. We thought we might have to go down that road, but it seems like there is sufficient interest in a SaaS that like we don't currently have to have to chase that. Um, but I do think it, I guess I look at GitHub, right? And GitHub eventually offered a, you can host GitHub yourself. And there are companies that do that. I don't know the economics on it, on how many companies host uh, GitHub themselves, but my feeling is that, that most companies are willing to trust GitHub. Yeah, it's tricky. I think probably more of the legacy companies, right? The Fortune 500 stuff. I can see them being more inclined to be like, oh, we want to host it ourselves and we're going to take three years to deploy it or whatever, right? Um, whereas like startups are just like, yeah, I'm going to ask, you know? Um, so it's kind of a, a mindset, I think, of like how old your company is and when you learn security, like, oh no, it's always got to be on-prem, you know, type of thing. I think there's also just people that really want to build 
Like there, there'll just be someone at a company that is enthusiastic about building like a SSH bastion. That's what they know. That's what they've, they've done in the past. And they're like, here's an opportunity for me to contribute to the company. And so, you know, if you, if you have an internal team that wants to just build their own from the ground up, I wouldn't recommend it, but like, you can't go and tell someone not to build something they really want to build. If they really want to build it, they're going to build it. Yeah, definitely. So I wanted to switch gears to something I've been thinking about recently. I'm sure you've seen in the news, lots of stuff about ransomware. There's a colonial pipeline. And I think there was some college like yesterday, uh, April 27th, that they actually posted on Twitter that there was a ransomware situation on campus. And their tweet said like, shut down your computer now. And then like, all Twitter made fun of them. <laughs> but um, in, in all serious, I mean, because if you're notifying people that way, you have a bigger problems, right? But at least they tried, right? Uh, I think they did I think they did get out of control. But it got me thinking, how can we, I guess, as an university community and just the United States in general, deal with the ransomware situation? Because it's just getting worse, right? So I was thinking, what if the major EDR, the import detection response companies, offered like 10 free licenses uh, for any, any computer that a company wants just indefinitely, right? So you could place those, those EDR agents strategically throughout your network. And when a, an, a malicious actor comes in, let's say they, it's, it's phishing or credential stuffing, they'll start to move laterally and, and they wait to encrypt until they've gotten all the computers, right? So eventually at least one of those 10 servers is getting it popped. And at that point, you should have early warning, right? And it might be enough early warning to actually stop the ransomware situation, right? And then those EDR companies have new customers, right? So it's win-win. And I'm wondering if we could start like, like a whole movement around this. I think I want to call the, the movement like hashtag 10 free or something. But I'm just I'm wondering if we could like rally the Emerson community around this idea. I, I think it would have huge impact to like America as well, you know? Yeah, I mean, I think just having that visibility into networks and the early detection is, in, is incredibly important. I tend to think about things with like a OTA loop. Uh, like observe, orient, decide, act, like decision-making loop. And like the faster you can observe and process data and reach the decision and act, the more you can reduce the impact and like cut down on the effect of ransomware. Uh, I think that deploying servers like that very much like fits into that. You're adding additional observations and being able to sort of get as early warning as possible. I wonder if like one thing that you would see from this, which might actually be a, a really positive thing, is that if you're an attacker and you assume that 1% of the hosts has this EDR warning on it, you might only want to like ransomware like 30% of the hosts or something. Like there's some, there's some optimal number. And so in some sense, attackers might be able to subvert this system, but in doing so, they would make the attack less bad. So you, it would like shape attackers, uh, attacker behavior in some ways. No, that'd be good. I think I saw a report from CrowdStrike today, that something like 60% of all companies that get ransomware go out of business or something like that, right? Whoa. Yeah, I know. It was, a, it was some huge number. And so, yeah, may, maybe if hackers started only ransomware 30% or something, the company could stay afloat. I mean, if you had all the domain controllers, man, you were screwed, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's, um, it's crazy. I, I remember in the 90s, there was all this like, People had written things like uh, ransomware as just like fun hobbyist projects. And there was all this talk about like, oh, someone could do it. And then we like didn't see it really like kick off until what, like five, six years ago. And now that the business model of the ransomware being a ransomware developer has been so validated by the market, unless you make the attacks less profitable, it's going to continue to get worse because you're going to see these illicit businesses just get better at doing it what they do. Like it's a red queen race, but it's a red queen race that if we don't speed up, it will out outrace us. Yeah, definitely. And I know. So I'm going off my own just personal experience, and I'm I'm wondering why companies aren't deploying these products that can deal with ransomware. And part of me thinks it's it's super hard to get funding for them because they're expensive, right? If you have like classic like McAfee or whatever antivirus moving to something like CrowdStrike can be like hundreds of thousands of dollars, right? And if you if you can't convince the leadership to make that kind of um, purchase, it's just not going to happen, right? Unless you have evidence that like, hey, PowerShell Empire, like it hit all 10 points that I deployed to, it's coming, 
all the other machines are compromised. You guys better do something now or you're going to lose everything. If you actually have that kind of evidence, I think that you get approval for it, right? Yeah, I mean, building that case that case internally, I'm not, I'm not as cynical as this, but I, I do think it has always resonated with me that people often see the value of security after the point at which it would have helped. Like if you solve security, then they're like, oh, we wasted the money. Right, right. And if you don't solve it, they're like, oh, we wish we had spent the money, but then it's too late. And I, I, I don't, I don't actually see things as cynical as that. I think that people don't just view the world that way. Um, they do take lessons from other companies uh, and they do evaluate uh, threats that may arrive that have not yet arrived. But yeah, like building that case, security is always organizationally tricky, both in terms of cost and also in terms of like workflows. Um, that's like something that we've always been incredibly sensitive about is like, even if your product is more secure, and even if the business wants to buy it, and even if they do buy it, if the workflows change so much that the engineers like don't use it or just go around it or like bypass it, then it's not going to actually provide the security benefit you want it to. Yeah, that, that, that's, that's super true. So since we're talking about this thought experiment, well, one, it'd be really cool um, if like a, almost like teaching people a lesson, right? Like you have a, you have a ransomware group that's actually like a bunch of like gray hats or white hats where cause they, there was like the guy that like he took over some blockchain like five million dollars or something but he gave it all back basically something like that where like you're like you know ransomware there for like two hours like just kidding like now you guys know you know or something like that and you move on that'd be great if like i don't know a group like that existed maybe that'd, that'd be great to see in the news every day right you know well there was there was one um ransomware and i don't think they ever figured out whether this was true or not but there was a, a ransomware that was spreading and uh, this person published a statement saying, like, here's the like secret keys to decrypt all the ransomware. I'm a high school student and I did this as a class project. And then I decided to deploy it and make a little bit of money. And then when I started getting so much money, I realized like I was in big trouble. And so here's all the decryption keys. Like, don't don't arrest me. And I, I don't know whether that the person was lying or not. But I can imagine that, you know, someone's like, oh, I get like, you know, $60,000. And then now they're getting like, you know, uh, tens of millions of dollars coming in and they're like, it's too big for them. But yeah, the, the, you've been ransomware, like, just kidding. Here's the keys. And so then my other thought is like, okay, if you take it a step further, like fishing, right? If you think about like people's parents and stuff, you know, they have no clue. They get text messages, the smishing and, um, if you could send enough, basically whatever the bad guys are sending, send a copy of it. Right. But it's like a teachable moment. We're like, oh yeah, by the way, this is actually a fake phishing, a fake phishing email. Like stop clicking these. You're, you're going to keep seeing my message, you know, and then eventually learn to stop, you know, clicking the phishing. Right. And it's like basically just a way to train people. And then, and then, the, then regular phishing becomes ineffective, right? Cause you're basically sending, so, like, if you could spam as much phishing and smishing as the bad guys do and just have, have it go to a page that just annoys people, people would stop clicking it, you know? Yeah, I think that's true. But I think that one of, at least one of the things that I've encountered with, with phishing, about once every two months, I will get a message and I'm like, this is 100% a phishing message. You know, it's like from my school or something and they're telling me that my password's too old, like click this link to reset your password. And it like looks incredibly suspicious. And I'm like, what do you think my password's too old? And like, I click the link because I'm like, you know, trying to figure out what's going on there. And I like run it in a sandbox. And then I'm like, ah, oh, that looks like the right thing. So I like contact IT and they're like, oh no, that's totally legit. We sent out this like email because your password's too old. And I'm like, the training has to be on both sides. Can't send out legitimate emails that look like phishing at the same time that you send out, like you, you you have to remove the positive stimulus of like actual emails that really, really look like phishing emails that are in fact legitimate. Yeah, I've seen it every once in a while, some of them where I'm not sure, and then I have to like do a ton of analysis on it. I'm like looking at the headers and stuff and like, oh, this has SPF, this has DKIM and like, or whatever. I, I guess maybe I'm, I'm dreaming of a world that's probably never gonna happen, but <laughs> it, it, it just bothers me that this stuff just, it, it just keeps happening, right? One thing that I've been excited about for a really long time is like FIDO and YubiKeys because they are uh, fundamentally incorporate the site that the 
MFA responses being sent to you, you can't really fish them. Yeah, definitely. And there's this class of, there's this research that's been around for a really long time. And I tried to, I talked to some people at Google and I tried to get them excited about it, but, but failed called uh, Peak, which is basically a way of doing the same thing, but with passwords. So your, your browser would like incorporate the, the site that you're sending the password to in this like clever crypto magic -y way so that a fake site couldn't reuse that password. Right. Like the, the response that you would send to like fakeexample.com would not be reusable or teach fakeexample.com anything about your password uh, that they could use to example.com. And for a while, I believe that the reason that this hadn't been adopted by major browsers was because of patents, because there actually were like quite a few patents, I think until 2015. But then a lot of those patents expired. And like, I was sort of expecting a mass adoption there and I just like didn't see it. So maybe in like 10 years, everyone will be super excited about Pake and rolling it out. But I don't know, I think it's such a fantastic idea. You could like even incorporate it into like keyboards or something. So you'd like enter like password mode and then your keyboard would do a uh, like a, a Pake channel with the website. Oh yeah, yeah, I was thinking about something about like, if you could have like even the, the FIDO2, if it liked something just, that just stuck off the mouse and you just kind of move your finger a little bit over to that, you know, if there was like a little nub in the mouse or something, or even like, do you remember the Staples easy button? It was the dumbest thing. It was this giant red button. It said, it said easy, the Staples, Staples sold this button. And it was called the easy button. And it was probably about maybe an inch and a half in diameter. And it was red, it said easy, and you put it on your desk. And when you clicked it, it would be like, that was easy. It was the dumbest thing. But if you had a button like that, that had like FIDO2 in it. And so I'm like typing in stuff like, oh, I have to authenticate. And I just hit this giant button next to me and it authenticates for me. Um, that'd be pretty sweet. Um, because as it stands now, it's like, I have to find a port for the super like tiny key. And I don't know, I, to me, it just seems like it's annoying. Um, not the FIDO2 is not cool, but it, maybe I just need like, like a portable dock for like the FIDO2 thing. And I can kind of turn it into a giant button because then it would almost be fun to press at that point. Well, the, the MacBooks have this button above the delete key which um, I believe is, is basically FIDO compatible. Yeah, that, that's great. But if, but if your MacBook's closed and you have like multiple monitors, it's, it's annoying as hell. Like I would love to use that. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I hadn't, thought, I hadn't thought of that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's like you want something. It should just be on every keyboard, honestly. Every keyboard should just have that button. It should be like a part of what a keyboard is. Maybe even put, you know, biometrics on there or something. Oh yeah, you can make like maybe for cor for corporations, there's just like you know a slot inside of the keyboard. I mean, you just you, you plug your key in and leave it there or whatever. I don't know. That, that that that'd be pretty cool. I mean, you could have like I had this idea a really long time ago. Um, I'm not sure it was a good idea. I like the the general idea, but I think that the, the actual implementation I had was was bad. Which was that um, you just use webcams and you have like a device around your neck, and so the webcam always knows when you're present with that device sitting at your keyboard. And so if you like get up and walk away, it just like locks everything down. And then when you sit down, it sees that and unlocks it. Or like connect, you could just have like a connect sitting there looking at you, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that, that would make sense. Yeah, that'd be pretty cool. I don't know. <laughs> there was a company a, a long time ago, um, I saw one of their product demos and I thought it was, it was cool. And I think it was one of these things that was like an excellent idea, but like the execution failed. It was a bracelet that you wore that was wireless. And it did a bunch of like biometrics and like heartbeat reading on you and it communicated with your computer. So it knew when you were close to it, if you ever like removed it and it didn't hear your heartbeat anymore, it would like lock itself down and you'd have to like type in the password again. Interesting. And so like wherever you went, it would just like work. You just put your hands on the keyboard and it would be good. But I'm trying to remember this and I hope I don't slander the, the company's security, but I think the company hasn't existed for a really long time, but it was like your heartbeat had something like seven bits of entropy or something based on the sensor. So it was like really easy to fool. And these security researchers just showed these like really dumb ways of like using tinfoil or something and removing the device and putting it on someone else's wrist. And it was like, it was such a cool idea. And like, I don't know, I, I wish they had, I, I think the security research of that form is incredibly important. And like people should show those like vulnerabilities. But like, I wish they had had like more time to develop that idea because I think it could have been really, I think it was a really good idea. And now with like Fitbit and stuff like that that have like much more advanced sensors, 
um, it seems much more likely that someone could actually build that in a secure way. Yeah, definitely. That, that, that'd be super cool. So are you guys thinking about adding, I love the fact that there's a second MFA verification for Bastion Zero. That seems like it's your special sauce. But let's just say Okta is compromised and somebody has your password to Google, which shows like Google Okta. Would there be a way to add like another MFA vendor as well? It'd be annoying to type in, you know, uh, multiple codes from multiple vendors. But you guys, has anybody asked for that? Or have you guys thought about that? So no one's asked for that. I've thought about that a lot, especially for like really important accounts, because the way that I often access sensitive accounts is I don't use the same like YubiKey for like I, I isolate accounts into different YubiKeys um, and have different levels of physical security for different YubiKeys. And so like, I would love like, okay, you're now doing something that is incredibly sensitive, get the like incredibly sensitive YubiKey out. Maybe it requires like that YubiKey and an additional factor of like uh, an approval on Slack and the approval on Slack also has to use a special YubiKey or, so it's, it's something that I've, I would, I would love customers to say, we really want that feature because I'd love to build that feature. And I think at some point we will build that feature, but so far it hasn't been requested. I feel like it's the sort of thing that once you build it, people will realize how, how good it is. But MFA itself is still somewhat of like a, a new thing that it hasn't really been fully digested by the, the, the like wider community. Yeah, definitely. Does your product work if somebody modifies like the Linux PAM? I know like 10 years ago, uh, I was putting like, uh, like Duo, uh, second factor, or, or I think it was no, Google Authenticator, second factor in the Linux PAM module. So when I SSH to a server, I would have to put in my Google Authenticator. It, would that also work with your guys' technology or not? Let me think about it. So explain how your system worked in more detail. So when you initiated SSH, you, you could associate a local user ID in the Linux system with the Google Authenticator TOTP. So you had to like do some stuff, something with the, the Linux privilege. It's good. It's the PAM module. I think it's called privilege access module. And it's like, it's like an on connect one time, like token you have to enter. So I don't, I don't see why we couldn't do that. I do think that because of the way our system works in terms of like uh, signing a ephemeral pub key that the user uses to then create an authenticated channel to the system they're accessing that you could essentially just like pass that information, which we're doing right now with the MFA to Bastion Zero, like in that channel, the channel's like only opened if you've MFA to Bastion Zero, but I could see like adding additional factors and additional signatures to that channel such that the agent could recognize that the user has performed these additional MFAs which grants them like access to a specific like Linux account. Yeah, I guess the question would be, do you build it on the Linux side or do you like let Bastion Zero handle all of that for you and then use the sort of crypto layer that Bastion Zero has so that the agent can check that that's done? Oh, I mean, definitely, ba I prefer Bastion Zero, right? But um, this is more like what we do is we had like a VPN you could, you could only get to if uh, like you checked your IP address into GitHub, then like the firewall would open, you connect to VPN, and then if you need to get to like production, you SSH to a Bastion server that can only talk to production, but use a different MFA token. And it's it's a pluggable authentication module, not, um, not privilege, but that's the PAM. And that's what you do authentication. But so I guess, yeah, either way, if, if you guys don't have it, I, I would think that someone that really wanted it could just set up their own Bastion server with a pluggable authentication module and then um, use that to authenticate to, to your product, right? And, and then they could have their... They're double MFA. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't know. I kind of like, I really like this idea of requiring different levels of factors for different levels of access because we have like a policy system and our policy system is stating like what levels of access a particular user has access to on like Linux systems, for instance. And so adding to that policy system like, oh, we actually need biometrics for this particular like you can log in as a read only, but if you want to log in as a root, that's going to require like just in time and like a biometric fingerprint and this like special, special second MFA and just like building that, building that into our policy system and then just it, it, like enforcing that at the agent. 
Yeah, that's a, it's kind of like when you have to go to a data center, right? And in some places, like you have to scan, you have, you have to do a whole like handprint to get in. Oh yeah. Well, so I used to build data centers back in the day, way back in the day. I used to go down to uh, Equinix in Virginia uh, and, and rack servers, and the handprint things were like really. I was like the first time I saw it, I was like, oh, it's so cool. It's like a missile silo or something. And then like basically there was a um, coat hanger and there's a big red button released on the other side. And they're just like, yeah, just use the coat hanger. Oh my God. And so you just stick the coat hanger through the cage and do it. And it was like, yeah, it's it's a pain to add, add contractors to the system. Just, just use the coat hanger. <laughs> that goes back to what you said before, people will find a way around it, right? <laughs> right, right. And it's like, it was, it was, it was, it was strangely disappointing. Data center security is interesting. I haven't, haven't been in a real data center in a long time. And I wonder if they've like beefed it up because I was there during like the dot-com crash. So it was a, you could see what was, what had existed and like that did not exist anymore. Like uh, in Equinix, they had a whole like video game arcade um, that you could just play video games for free in this like special human box inside the, the huge data center. And like half the machines were broken and, and were never going to be fixed because like during the, the dot-com boom, they'd spend lots of money fixing all the machines. But now it's like, no one has money for that. Everything's lean. And so, yeah, I wonder like how data centers have now like adapted now that like things are, have been booming for a while again. Yeah. I, know, I haven't been in one uh, probably for five years, but there's definitely the hand thing. There might've been a man trap. I forget. Those are interesting too. Yeah. Cool. Well, thank you. Thank you for taking the time uh, to speak with me today. I appreciate definitely. it. Definitely. Thanks for having me on. It was uh, great to talk with you. Yeah, definitely. Thanks. If you like the episode today and would like to help support us, please hit subscribe, drop us a review, or share with your friends. Thanks.